Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells you all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a brand new guest. I have Barry Goldstein on. He's a National Research Director. Barry Goldstein is nationally recognized domestic violence author, speaker, and advocate. He has worked in the domestic violence movement since 1983. Barry served on the board of a DV shelter in Westchester County for 14 years, including four as a chairperson. He has also been an instructor and later also supervisor in a New York model batterer program since 1999. Barry Goldstein practiced as an attorney for 30 years. Most of his practice involved representing protective mothers. Barry has written some of the leading books about domestic violence and custody. He co-edited two volumes of domestic violence, abuse, and child custody with Dr. Mo Hanna. He co-authored Representing the Domestic Violence Survivor with Elizabeth Liu. Barry is also the author of Scared to Leave, Afraid to Stay, The Quincy Solution, Stop Domestic Violence and Save $500 billion. Barry is a sought-after speaker whose expertise has been welcomed by many organizations, including the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, Battered Women Custody Conference, National Domestic Violence Hotline, American Psychological Association, National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, OVW in the U.S. Justice Department, Canadian Institute of Health, Oklahoma Attorney General's Office, as well as Centers for Judicial Excellence, and Oklahoma, I think I said Oklahoma Attorney General's Office, and the Louisiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. He serves as co-chair of the Child Custody Task Force for the National Organization for Men Against Sexism. I welcome you, Attorney Goldstein, to the podcast and you know, you've been so active in this. How did you get involved in all this work that you have done? Well, two things happened at once. Um, I had a case in which my client had hit his daughter, and I didn't know whether what he did constituted abuse. And at about the same time, I was asked to serve on the board of my sister's place, which is a better women's shelter in Westchester County, New York. And I figured that if I served on the board, I would be better able to serve my clients and I really have an answer to how to recognize um, domestic violence and child abuse. And so that's what I did. And I've been, that's been a major part of my life ever since. Mm -hmm. You know, you must've put in so many hours and helping people, you know, and, you know, books that you have written, you know, how long did it take you to write your first book? Um, sort of on and off, I would say five, at least five years. Yeah. And if I could, what happened was many of my clients talked about writing a book to tell other women about their experiences and they never quite got to do it. So I told their stories in this book. And in most cases, they helped me to write their stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of women want their stories told, you know, because it's just been so, you know, such a horrific experience for them and, and they want to feel validated. 
Um, do you ever run into any men that have been um, abused as well? Um, it does happen, but it is much less common. And I think we need to keep in mind, the context is that for thousands of years, um, society encouraged and allowed husbands to control, to uh, abuse, to discipline their wives. And there was never any equivalent where the wives were given that power and authority. Um, interestingly, um, the first law in the United States about what we now call domestic violence said that husbands may not beat their wives on Sunday. Mm. Any other day it was fine. And so there is that long history. So there are women who mistreat or assault their husbands, but it's rare and it's usually more likely to be uh, an unusual individual or someone with a mental health problem. Um, and, you know, there's this tendency to want to create a false equivalency between men and women when it comes to domestic violence. And that's just not accurate. Mm -hmm. And it's arisen from patriarchy. Yes. And patriarchy has been around since, I don't know, not to sound stupid, but the Bible days. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's this long history, and that's why it's been so hard to overcome that. You know, there are laws that have changed, but there's still so many people who believe in the outdated um, beliefs that, you know, created patriarchy. Do you think we've come far enough that we are starting to overcome patriarchy or it's still in play? Well, it's certainly still in play. And what's really concerning is that there's really been a backlash so that, you know, for a while um, with the start of the domestic violence movement, we were making a lot of progress, particularly the DV homicide rate went down for many years. But what has happened is um, the abuser rights movement has been very successful in using custody courts to regain control over women. And the courts have allowed themselves to be manipulated. And as a result, a lot of the progress we have made has been reversed and the murder rate has stopped going down and in some places has gone up again uh, because of the success that abusers have in our custody courts. Now, everyone talks about educating judges. And a lot of these judges, and no offense to older judges, but they're old. So you would think they would have this down pat by now. Well, I, I think that there's a history, and I don't think it gets enough consideration. You know, really, the modern movement to end domestic violence started in the 1970s. And at that time, we had no research. And the popular assumptions were that domestic violence was caused by 
mental illness or substance abuse. And that caused courts to turn to mental health professionals as if they were the experts. And of course, they're experts in psychology, they're experts in mental illness, but they're not experts in domestic violence or child abuse. So now you've had, you know, 40 odd years of court professionals listening to experts who don't understand domestic violence and child abuse. So they've heard a lot of misinformation so that it's now deeply ingrained. And what's frustrating is we now have a lot of really important research that would make it much easier for courts to recognize and respond to domestic violence. And the courts have been really slow to do that. At the same time, if you think about it, domestic violence is about control, including financial control. And that means that the contested cases, which are really domestic violence cases, overwhelmingly, the money is on the side of the abusers. So they have the money to present um, you know, so-called experts to create and concoct bogus theories. And the courts have heard so much more of that than accurate information. And you know, that's a big problem right now. Mm -hmm. I've also noticed with people that have come on my podcast is that they've got excellent evidence of domestic violence in, or even chi well, child abuse. And the judges don't want to look at the evidence. They don't even want to hear it. They just don't admit the evidence. Certainly that happens. And, you know, what's really disappointing, very often the attorneys for protective mothers are afraid to or refusing to present this evidence often because they think the courts don't want to use it or don't want to hear it. And you know what they're thinking is that the evidence that demonstrates there's a history of domestic violence and child abuse undermines their preferred outcome, which is shared parenting. And the research shows these are not cases for shared parenting. But again, because the courts are not using the research, you know, they're not focusing on what works best for children. And of course, we're generalizing. There are some judges that get it and some that won't listen. And there's a lot of judges that if you present the right information, they will listen. But then you sometimes have attorneys who are not willing to present that information. Mm -hmm. And another side that's disturbing is say your opposing attorney is, uh, you know, who knows what they have been told by their client, but they are participants in child abuse themselves by handing a child over to the abuser. Yeah, I mean, well, the system is broken. The, you know, we've been using practices that fail children for a long time. And, and just to say something out loud, you have two really good studies. One is the ACE study, A-C-E, that stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, and this is peer-reviewed medical research. It comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so highly credible. The other is the Saunders study that comes from the National Institute of Justice in the U.S. Justice Department. So again, highly credible. And this research 
goes to the essence of the well-being of children. Fundamentally, without ACE, courts minimize the harm from domestic violence and child abuse. And without Saunders, courts routinely rely on the wrong experts and disbelieve true reports of abuse. And what's crazy is there is this unscientific alienation theory that was created by Richard Gardner to start the cottage industry so that they would have an approach to help abusive fathers take custody from good mothers. And this has been twice rejected by the American Psychiatric Association because there's no research to support it. It was based on the belief that sex between adults and children can be acceptable. And I don't think judges would have adopted this if they knew the background. But what's absolutely crazy is this non-scientific theory twice rejected by the leading professional organization has more influence over the courts than two peer-reviewed scientific research that goes to the essence uh, of the well-being of children. And those two studies are promoted by the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, which is you know, one of the most well-respected judicial organizations. And still the courts haven't made the reforms that they need. Well, there are judges that totally accept what comes out of, we'll say, the opposing attorney's mouth. For instance, she's alienating the kids. That That's what happened in my case. So immediately they ran with that. And what had happened in actuality was my ex was alienating my children from me. And, you know, I interviewed Dr. Jennifer Jill Harmon and you know, she's been published in scientific journals and unfortunately, shared parenting and 50-50 can work for people that don't have personality disorders. These are people we don't hear about because they're managing their families appropriately and maturely. But the ones we're seeing in court are these personality disorders that the judges can identify with such as, uh, I don't want to, everyone's tired of the word narcissist, but we'll just say personality disorders. And, you know, what do you think of that? Because, you know, everybody wants this shared parenting, but it's not, it's not cookie cutter. Well, if I could just tweak it a little bit, you know, one of the earliest mistake was to treat domestic violence as if it was caused by mental health problems. It isn't. The problem is that um, men who are abusive, if they also have mental health problems, they have less inhibitions, so their abuse is more severe, more memorable. That's where the original false assumptions came from. Um, but the thing is, Domestic violence is simply bad behavior. Mm -hmm. It's based on a uh, sense of entitlement, um, the belief that men are superior to women, that they're entitled to make the decisions. And domestic violence are tactics to force her to do what he wants. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I think too often we lean too heavy into the mental health problem. And lots of times, you know, what the courts will do 
when they have as someone who has both mental health problems and DV problems is they'll send them for therapy and think that solves the problem, which it doesn't. And very often which what happens is he'll go to a therapist and he'll spend time complaining about what a lousy wife he had. And that's not going to change his behavior. Mm -hmm. And the courts can't get these individuals to change their behavior, yet they hand over the kids to them. Well, when I testify, you know, I, I mentioned that the research is clear. The only thing that changes abusers' behavior is accountability and monitoring. And that's because of what we talked about before, that there is this long history. And so many men still believe that they're entitled to control their um, partners and to make the decisions. Um, and so think about domestic violence is different than most other crimes. There was never a time when arson or bank robbery was acceptable behavior. It was always a crime. It, it would always be punished. But a little over a generation ago, what we now call domestic violence had no criminal consequences. So you'll remember several years ago, there were a number of NFL players who were arrested for domestic violence and child abuse crimes. And they said, probably truly, you know, honestly, that they didn't think they were doing anything wrong because all they were doing was what they witnessed growing up. And that's a big part of the problem. That's why accountability is so important. And so what I recommend to the courts is that they force the men to complete an accountability program and prove that they're going to change rather than put the burden on mothers and children, which is what's doing now. You know, if we were to use the research that's available, we would change the discussion in the court from what can the mother and child do to accommodate the father's abuse to what can the father do to reduce the fear and, and stress that he's causing? Because ACE tells us it's that fear and stress that are causing most of the harm. Mm -hmm. So we're not even having the right discussions in court. Right. And as far as accountability, these judges don't hold these, um, you know, I mean, there are nice guys out there. I don't want to bash men either, you know, but when a, <clears throat> when an ex doesn't show up for visitation, and that's also a, a form of domestic violence as well, when he's ordered X amount of hours to give to, to the mother for, you know, uh, to visit with her child, and then he just doesn't show up. And then if they go for an emergency petition, they just give him a slap on the wrists. Well, I mean, think about what, what has really happened is that judges have heard constantly that children do better with both parents in their lives. And in general, that's true mm -hmm. when you have two good parents. Right. But when you have a father who's abusive, he's causing more harm than good. And just to say something out loud that I think is important for judges to hear, children do not need both parents equally. 
they need their primary attachment figure more than the other parent. They need the safe parent more than the abusive one. And when you say it, it's it seems obvious, but the courts have such a strong bias to keep even abusive fathers in children's lives, and they're doing it in a way that is harming the children. Um, and, you know, based on ACE, mm-hmm. the children in contested custodies are going to lose years from their lives mm-hmm. and will suffer more health and social problems throughout their lives unless we do something different than the courts are typically doing. The These contested custody cases are the last chance to save the children from that awful consequence. And unless someone is in the case talking about ACE, you know, the court is almost inevitably going to come up with an outcome that fails to protect the children from the consequences of exposure to multiple ACEs. And so we try to explain that to the court. And it's really powerful when I tell a judge, you know, unless we do something different than you're used to, this child is going to lose years from his or her life. That's mm-hmm. a really powerful statement. You know, there's a lot of things wrong with what judges do, but no judge wants to hurt children. And if we can help the judge understand the consequences, then we can get better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Then there's the other issue of collusion where the opposing attorney is friends with the judge, everyone socializing together and at the same watering hole. And as someone who's been through domestic violence, how can you even break through that? Because you know your case is predetermined and you're going to lose right coming out of the gate. Well, you know, I find that a lot of protective mothers talk about you know, that the court system is corrupt. And, you know, it looks that way because what's happening is the courts are making really horrific decisions that are harming children. They're not following what the evidence is. But I think there is corruption with the cottage industry. Mm -hmm. I think lots of times there's pressure to appoint um, cottage industry professionals, particularly evaluators, and lots of times the lawyer for the mother and sometimes the GAL will, you know, sort of come together for a cottage industry evaluator. And then there's almost no chance of protecting the child. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I don't think that, you know, there's much corruption in terms of judges being paid off. I think there's a tendency that we have a, a positive view of attorneys. I mean, I, I remember when I was a young attorney and I, I knew nothing and I was probably making like $4,000 a year or something like that. But as soon as I became an attorney, I received a level of respect that I don't think I deserved at that point. <laughs> and so, you know, for attorneys that the judge has worked with under over many years, you know, it's natural that they're going to be sympathetic, they'll be trusting, etc. And, you know, I don't think it's deliberate, but I do, I agree with you that it's harmful. Um, and, and I think part of it is 
you know, the judges are not trained about ACE and Saunders and the other research that's needed. And Saunders says we should use a multidisciplinary approach. And that would include someone with expertise in domestic violence and child abuse. And if the court kept hearing the right information, I think it would be compelling. When I told the court the reality, it, it usually is compelling. You know, there are some judges that will never listen, but there are many that will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of times the judges are harming children. You know, they wouldn't if they understood, you know, the consequences of what they're doing, mm -hmm. but they're just doing what they're used to. I noticed, well, not to re reiterate the collusion, but there are certain courthouses, we'll say in the South, North Carolina, Miami-Dade, Florida, where there is such deep collusion that it really that the safe parent really doesn't have a chance at all. And that's not fair to the child. Yet that judge will turn around and berate that safe parent saying, look how you made that child feel. How could you have done that? And they totally twist it on that parent. You know, how yeah. do you, what do you think of that? Well, one of the findings in the Saunders study, he says that there are certain types of DV knowledge that everyone needs. Court professionals without that knowledge tend to focus on the myth that mothers frequently make false reports and tend to focus on unscientific alienation theories. So when you have a judge or any other professional focusing on the mother must be lying, there's alienation, that says nothing about the case and everything about the lack of training of the professionals saying that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just sort of my opinion that I think that's what's going on, which I do believe, but it's the research confirms that, but it's research that most judges, lawyers, and evaluators are unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or is it that they just don't want to hear it? They just want to get the case over with. Maybe their docket is so full, they just want to move on to the next one. Well, you, you know, Miriam, the problem is complex. There are many different parts to it. So the overcrowded calendars very often contribute to it. And one of the problems is context is important in understanding domestic violence. And court professionals, particularly judges, will use shortcuts to save time because of the crowded calendars. They're not doing that to try to hurt anybody. They're trying to save time, but it takes longer to provide the context. It takes longer to talk about the research, which the court isn't familiar with, instead of the usual practices that they're familiar with, but are wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when courts try to save time, it is harmful. And the other big problem that's related is, you know, courts try to reach settlements for good reasons. You know, Every court does that because they couldn't handle their calendars any without doing that. The problem is that when you're trying to reach a settlement, you're not looking for what's the fairest. You're not looking for what works best for the child. You're looking for 
what they can get both sides to agree to. And we're dealing in DV custody cases with the worst abusers who are going to be unreasonable. So the only way they can get a settlement is to pressure the safe parent to agree to what her abuser wants. And that usually is shared parenting. And so that's why they like shared parenting, even though it's inappropriate. You know, Saunders found we should never do shared parenting in domestic violence cases. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is some good research that says shared parenting is never beneficial to children because it's so disruptive. There is some legitimate research that shared parenting can be appropriate when both parties want it, when the parents are able to communicate, when neither party is afraid of the other and they live nearby. But that's not DV custody cases. But when courts use a high conflict approach, mm -hmm. they immediately assume that they want co-parenting, that they want to push it to mm -hmm. uh, shared parenting, and they, they are not very open to hearing that this is a case where that's not appropriate. And very often they view the mother who's trying to protect the child mm -hmm. as the obstacle. And often they try to punish her for not you know, going along with the program. And, and if I could share with you, um, there was an interesting story out of California that I wrote an article about, and it was about um, a mother who was in the kitchen making dinner, and her five-year-old son was in the backyard playing, and all of a sudden, her son was attacked by a mountain lion, and the mother ran out, and she actually punched the mountain lion, and it ran away. And you think about it, the reason I wanted to write about that story, I mean, you told about maternal instinct and how mm -hmm. mothers naturally work to protect their children. But what I like to say is that mother was not acting to alienate the mountain lion. She just wanted to protect her child. Mm -hmm. And that's what the courts are missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're really missing it. Uh due to the it seems constant in the news now that there have been murders it seems like more so now than i've ever heard before i think the media is doing a little bit better job now than they used to and of course um you mentioned i work with the center for judicial excellence and they're the ones that keep records and the last i looked in the last 13 years, over 870 children involved in contested custody have been murdered. And in many of those cases, the court gave the abuser the access he needed to kill the children. And what was particularly concerning, uh, in one of my books, there was a chapter by Dr. Diane Bartlow, who followed up on the child murders mm -hmm. and she interviewed judges and court officials in the communities where these tragedies occurred and she asked them 
what reforms have you created in response to the murder in your community to try to make children safer? And the shocking response was nothing because they assumed that the tragedy locally was an exception. And that's really what we're do dealing with. That there's this um, defensiveness. You know, we've, we've looked at many child murders where immediately the court system put something out. We didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. We did everything right. And when you look at the transcript, they made many mistakes because they don't understand DV. They caused the problem. And you would think when you see a, a young child lose their life, because of their mistakes, that that would be the impetus to create the reforms that are needed. But they've been really defensive and, and that really you know, concerns maybe need to change the system. If, if, if they understood the harm that they were doing, because I'll tell you, the one thing judges fear is being front page story. Mm -hmm. and they don't want that, but they're not understanding that these practices are doing that. And in a number of the cases, the judges said in the transcript, just because the father hurt the mother doesn't mean he would hurt the children. And the research shows that's absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. But the judge said that out loud, used that reasoning to give the father access which he then used to kill the child. Mm -hmm. So we know exactly the mistake they made, and they still won't reform. I think the only reform is is to abolish the family court system. It's just so broken, dysfunctional. I don't know what you think of that, but you know, some people say no, we can reform it, but I just think it's just well, I actually am the author of a reform proposal, really a comprehensive reform proposal. It's called the Safe Child Act. Mm -hmm. It's been introduced, I believe, in six states. Unfortunately, it hasn't passed yet. And what the Safe Child Act would do, the first thing it would say is the first priority in all custody cases is the health and safety of children. And one of the reasons the word health is there is that it would require courts to look at ACE, which I think would change everything. The next thing is we very specifically want courts to integrate current scientific research, particularly ACE and Saunders, which again, I think would be important. Mm -hmm. We want courts to use um, a um, multidisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. We want there to be an early hearing limited to the issue of abuse. Because what happens now is that the others, the abusers will try to distract attention with alienation and all sorts of other things. But if there's domestic violence or child abuse, number one, the other issues are far less important. And number two, we know the outcome should be custody to the mother and um, at most supervised visits to the father. If we have a hearing early in the process that is only considering abuse, you know, there's a much better chance the courts will get the, the decision wrong. Mm -hmm. 
and we'll get the decision right. And one of the things that will happen is if they find the father's abuse, that's the end of the case. So they have an incentive to make the right decision because it'll save court time and, and effort. Another big part of it is, as you know, right now, victims often are spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars here an early hearing that might take an um, hour or two could solve cases that otherwise would go many months or years. So it would be a huge benefit. Um, the Safe Child Act would also require retraining uh, for judges and other court professionals. And it would be a multidisciplinary approach. And it, they would be trained on the specific subjects that Saunders says court professionals need. Because now the judiciary controls the training. Lots of times judges don't even, you know, want to pay attention because they think they know everything. And, you know, we've seen DV trainings where they're teaching people to use alienation theories and uh, high conflict and all other types of mistakes that lead to the mistakes, whereas Saunders would tell them the right subjects to, to learn about. Um, we would also, we want to get domestic violence agencies involved. We want them to do some of the training and we'd like to train advocates, which would mean that protective mothers could present an expert witness, even if they can't afford one. And so we want to put some money into DV agencies so that they can provide assistance because they're the experts. And it's, it's really important to focus on that because courts, as we talked about at the start, courts have been using mental health professionals as if they were the experts, mm -hmm. but the actual experts are domestic violence advocates. And so mm -hmm. if we could change that around. And the other thing about the Safe Child Act is it would specifically say, the present practices are working poorly. The purpose of this act is to change practices that are harming children. And so we specifically want you to stop doing that. Because what we have had, some states have passed piecemeal legislation with good ideas to change this or that or the other. And what happens are the judges are finding ways to get around it because it's not comprehensive language. It's not telling the courts, stop doing the harmful things you're doing that are hurting children. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we need to be concerned about is that the judiciary is often defensive, is often fighting the reforms that are needed. Mm -hmm. You know, in some of the states where the Safe Child Act was introduced, you know, the judiciary, you know, sabotaged it. You know, they, they don't want their discretion to be limited. They want to have the discretion to do things that are going to hurt children, which is a problem. They don't understand the harm that they're causing. Mm -hmm. And so we want to take that discretion away. We want to say health and safety is the first priority. Mm -hmm. When there is domestic violence brought up 
in the courtroom and they have a tape of the male threatening them, the female, the mother, why doesn't the judge stop proceedings and move it right into criminal court? Well, keep in mind that in order to have a criminal conviction, you need to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a really high standard of proof. You know, one of the examples of gender bias, and there is widespread gender bias in the courts, is, you know, if you can't prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, which means it's more than 99% likely, that doesn't mean you can't prove it, you know, by a preponderance of the evidence, which is just over 50%. And so, you know, I think that's part of the problem. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, bad practices that courts use are based on asking victims to just get over it. You know, there's this sense that the end of the relationship ends the risk, um, which is 100% wrong, but they believe that. Um, and they have the priority to keep the father in the child's life. They think they're doing the child a favor by doing that when the research says otherwise. But, but that's fundamentally the issue. They're not using the research. <clears throat> you know, they're, they're making a lot of assumptions that the research proves is not true. Many standard practices that courts use are proven wrong by Ace and Saunders, which is why we're so interested in getting Ace and Saunders to be uh, just a standard part of court procedure. Mm -hmm. Well, if there is, um, say, a tape being played in court where they're threatening lives, that they're going to kill, that they come out and say, I, I'm going to kill you and somebody else, What? but should legally, shouldn't that just stop right there and it be moved to? a criminal? Why should that be handled in family court by a judge that is not, you know, like you, like you had said, just not, uh, I guess he's not doing. Well, right. keep in mind that when, when the judge is hearing it, he or she is hearing it as part of a custody case. The decision to bring it into criminal court is for first police and then prosecutors. And, you know, very often the victim didn't want it prosecuted uh, either because she was afraid of the abuser's reaction or, you know, there would be some other consequence, possibly financial. And so, I mean, lots of times, you know, ironically, mothers who were being accused of alienation didn't pursue the most far-reaching criminal consequences, and yet she's the one being blamed. Mm -hmm. And as far, you know, as you said about financial abuse, that would also tie in with legal abuse because I've talked to women that are being told, well, you can't bring a case in until you pay the other opposing attorney's $8,000 fees, we'll say, and then I'll listen to your case. And that's that's legal abuse at its finest, making someone who's already um, 
lost their job, for instance, whatever the situation is, and then extorting money out of them? Well, in my first book with Dr. Anna, um, we had a chapter by Judge Mike Brigner. And one of the things he said in his chapter is that courts have the authority to require, you know, um, the abuser, assuming he has most of the money, to pay the mother's legal fees, or at least some of them, in order to uh, balance the playing field. And, you know, courts are not using that power as often as they should, and Judge Brigner was recommending that they do. Um, another book that you probably are familiar with, uh, which is one of the leading books in the field, um, The Batterer's Parent by Lundy Bancroft. And one of the rec recommendations in that book is that an abuser should pay all expenses caused by his abuse, including legal fees, including therapy, expert fees, etc. And if the courts started doing those things, you know, you would balance the playing field and we'd be able to present the information. And if the father knew that he had to pay both both attorneys, he would stop his excessive litigation because it would no longer benefit him. And that would be a way for the courts to save a lot of time and resources. I've heard of some cases where you have a personality disorder completely run the courtroom. <laughs> I mean, it it's seriously absolutely crazy to see and he, and hear and know that this is indeed happening, where they are getting everything handed to them at the mother's expense. Not all guys, don't get me wrong, because I, I, I'm working with guys that are getting abused as well. But um, they are, the, the child is given to this abuser. Then if there's visitation, if the father doesn't approve whoever she picked to go through the visitation process, if he doesn't like that, then he just says, no, not that one. Um, pick someone else. And then they keep doing this. Okay. Let me say a couple of things. Quite good. The first thing is we know that abusers are very manipulative. They're mm -hmm. very good at that. And too often courts allow themselves to be manipulated. Mm -hmm. But another point, you know, within Saunders, which says, you know, you need to learn how to screen for DV. One of the ways you should be screening for DV is to determine the alleged abuser's motive. You see, the, the context is most custody cases are settled more or less amicably. The problem is about 3.8% of all cases that require a trial and often much more. Courts are taught to treat this as high conflict, but the research says 75 to 90% of these cases are really domestic violence cases involving the worst abusers. And that doesn't mean that he committed the most severe physical abuse. It means that he believes she had no right to leave. And so he's using the litigation to regain what he thinks is his right to control her and to punish her for leaving. So the point 
is it would be wrong for a court to assume just based on the statistics that the father is an abuser in a contested custody case, even though usually they are. But it would also be wrong to do what they are doing, which is just assuming the father is acting out of love for the child. What the court ought to be doing is looking at his behavior to determine what his motive is. And he's often giving the court a lot of clues about his motive, and the court doesn't know to look at it. So when he stops paying child support, when he's denigrating the mother, when he doesn't take visitation or, you know, he, he takes the visitation and puts the children with someone else because he's not doing it to have a relationship. He's just trying to take the child away from the mother. So there's all sorts of very strong evidence that shows his motives mm -hmm. and court professionals don't know to even look for that. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a quandary of a very broken system. There's a, there's a long history of getting it wrong and they seem to have an interest in justifying their past mistakes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really doesn't make sense that they're not using Ace and Saunders. Mm -hmm. That would make their their jobs so much easier. And more importantly, it would benefit the children because that's mm -hmm. what the research is focused on. And they're just not used to doing it. You know, right. I have another question. I don't want to keep you all evening, <laughs> but... Um, it seems like, and I've noticed from people that I've talked to, is that they want to throw the safe partner in jail as fast as possible. Either by saying they're, they're not paying their child support or or making up something else. And that also adds to the ACEs because a question in the ACE is, have you ever had a parent in jail? So, something to that effect. What is going on with these personality disorders that want the safe parent? Well, again, I know most of the time it's not a personality disorder. It's a sense of entitlement. Remember that we said uh, just a couple minutes ago, the purpose of the father going after custody is to regain control and punish his partner for leaving. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what he's trying to do. He doesn't have the access to her that he used to, and so he's trying to get the court to do his abusive work for him. That's what's going on, and unfortunately, the courts are allowing themselves to be manipulated. And it's really interesting. Um, there were a couple of pretty well-known cases around the same time in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And in one of the cases, the father had a long history of physical assault, abusing his partners, threatening murder. You know, he was a real ne'er-do-well. And that's uh, uh, saying it gently. Um, and he was limited initially to supervised visits. And the court immediately couldn't wait to get him to normal visitation. They allowed him to select a, an evaluator to say he was okay. 
quickly resume normal visitation, which he used to kill the boy. At the same time, there was a case where a mother who's the primary attachment figure, the father always wanted the mother to do most of the child care. She was a successful attorney, um, but they got an evaluator who was part of the cottage industry, claimed the alienation, and they kept her on supervised visits when there was no risk, when it was extremely harmful to the child to be denied a normal relationship with his primary attachment figure. And they allowed that to go for many years at a time. And that's typical that when the father's denied, you know, there's this huge, you know, rush, let's get him back to normal visitation, even when he's dangerous. But when they make a mistake and you know, limit a mother for no good reasons, just like unscientific alienation, you know, they're willing for that to go on for many years at a time. You know, so gender bias is a, a big problem in the courts. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of it is if, if you say to somebody you know, you're engaging in gender bias, they would tend to be very defensive or even retaliatory. And so that discourages a discussion of a really important issue. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've made so little progress um, about gender violence. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Um, one last question, and then I'll let you go. <laughs> um, what advice would you give, say, your daughter before she gets married? And... Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you have daughters or not, but I don't know. Did you do background checks? Uh, what, what advice would you give? Well, I mean, obviously you want to see how he's treating somebody and also how he treats other women is, you know, if he's as, you know, sexist beliefs or something like that, we should really be um, careful. But that said, Abusers are able to control their behavior, mm -hmm. which is not what we're thinking and we've been taught. And so like in the battle class, we, we often talked about that. Abusers, you know, act appropriately at the start of a relationship, or else there wouldn't be a relationship. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just isn't tailored. Um, when I was an attorney, I had a number of times where I worked really hard with a client to help her get away from an abuser. And then a few years later, she would come back and she was with another abuser and she would blame herself, what's wrong with me, that I did this. And one of the things I would point out is just statistically, there are all too many abusive men out there mm -hmm. and it's too easy to find another one. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, I think one thing is not to rush into a marriage would, would be, you know, abusers tend to want to move quickly. Mm -hmm. And so to take your time and, you know, to see if he can accept you telling things that maybe isn't what he wants to hear right then mm -hmm. might be helpful. Oh, that's excellent advice. Well, I'm really glad we had this discussion and I don't want to take up your whole evening. <laughs> If anyone wants to reach you, how can they contact you? Well, I have a website. I, I work as a, a 
an expert witness um, speaker and uh, advocate. Um, and that's barrygoldstein.net. Um, starting in the new year, I'm going to be forming a partnership with uh, Veronica York, and we're going to be working together on that. Mm -hmm. um, my email is like my name, barryg78 at aol.com. And so we're working on these things. And as I mentioned, I work with the Center for Judicial Excellence, and we do, you know, lobbying and um, advocacy work and, uh, you know, try to change the broken system. So mm -hmm. that's how I can be reached. Well, thank you for, I totally appreciate your time. Thank you so very much for coming on. So um, okay. uh, don't jump off. Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. It was great having you on, Attorney Goldstein. Thank you so very much. Okay. It was nice speaking with you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, And by the way, just so you know, I'm not an attorney. Oh. I, I was for 30 years. Oh. I, I, I like to say now I'm a nice guy. Ah, you are. You are fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>